Welcome to The Launch, the podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch, where we talk about tech, startups, entrepreneurship, and everything in between. We give you the inside scoop on building a startup, capital fundraising, the entrepreneurial journey, with both funny and impactful stories. This podcast is for budding entrepreneurs, ecosystem players, industry folks, venture capitalists looking for deals, students considering a career in the startup world, or anyone with a curiosity in Deepak. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tenemlaunch.com, or hit us up on LinkedIn. Let's build the future together. And now, on with show. Welcome everyone to a special episode podcast where we are talking about entrepreneurship, startups, and women in tech. We know there's not enough women in tech. We know there's a leaky pipeline. And we know that women founders are currently underfunded. So let's unpack some of this. Welcome to our esteemed panel. We've got Lori Rodriguez, digital marketing guru, CDO of Women in Tech, and author of the upcoming book, the Hidden Lives of Women in STEM. We have Lynn Hine, graduate student in engineering at McGill University and past participant of the Young Women's Tech Leadership Program at Tandem Launch with a natural born instinct for entrepreneurship. Next, we have Kate Grant, scaling startups with her eyes closed, business advisor at Baskin, startup advisor and FinTech expert. Then we have Judy Fairburn, co-founder and co-CEO of The 51, a female-led, feminist-centric venture capital firm, board member extraordinaire, and winner of the Influential Women in Business Lifetime Achievement Award. Then we have Nicole Verkent, award-winning serial entrepreneur, CEO of OMX, Startup Canada's 2019 Women Entrepreneur Ambassador of the Year, Toronto brand star, and even more. And I'm Bobby Bidochka, Venture Associate for Tandem Launch and podcast host of The Launch. And I am so excited to be in the presence of this stellar panel of accomplished humans. So welcome, everyone. Be here. <laughs> it is yes. awesome to be here. Uh, coast to coast, Canada, US, we are a real force to be reckoned with today. Yeah, super excited to be part of this today. Same here. Love the topic passionate for getting women in STEM and so glad that you invited us, Bobby. Yeah, should be great. Really looking forward to having a conversation with y'all. Excellent. So then let's start off with Nicole. So share with our audience your entrepreneurial journey and along the way, how did your gender play a role, if at all, as far as challenges or successes? Sure. Wow. Well, um, thanks again, Bobby. It's, uh, it's great to be part of this conversation. It's been, uh, it's been great getting to know everyone on the panel, uh, through this process. Um, I'm not sure where to start because, uh, I've been an entrepreneur really from the beginning, uh, right. When I, when I left university, I went and worked, uh, on a commission only sales role. And the whole time was thinking about how to leave and start my first business. Um, so I started in the manufacturing sector, uh, I then went and joined a family business, had to restructure it and, and sell that business. And then I started a tech company uh, called OMX, uh, specialized in supply chain and uh, something called country of origin tracking. Uh, we then pivoted into ESGs and became the leading uh, ESG platform for reporting on ESGs and supply chain. Um, so 
done done a lot as well on the angel investment side. I've invested in, um, I can't remember the number now, something around 20 uh, startups. Um, I bought a couple SaaS companies outright as well. Um, I've got one now that's been really busy doing contact tracing through the, the COVID pandemic. So been pretty active in the, in the tech, uh, tech scene, uh, love startups, um, love this topic of women in STEM and women in tech. Um, I've also done a lot of thinking around what that process really looks like to innovate. I remember when I was starting OMX, which was really my first step in STEM. Before that, I was an entrepreneur, but in manufacturing. And when I started OMX, I just sort of, first of all, I, I wasn't technical. I think that's an important lesson is that I partnered up with a CTO who was technical in nature and um, I was the entrepreneur. Um, so I started OMX and I wasn't technical. I, I partnered with CTO who was technical. But I think if I were to look back on that process that I've had, uh, with OMX in particular over those eight or nine years, I think it's really important for people to understand what the process of innovation really looks like. And when I looked at 20, 30, 40 other stories of other great innovators and people, they had a very similar process. And it was this process that required uh, three things in my view. Um, the first is to collaborate intensely. So to share your idea with everybody, you know, this notion of like, I'm not gonna tell anyone the idea. The second is to fail. The second most important thing, part of the process is to fail. So you have to fail. And then as you fail, you iterate. And so you continue to iterate along that process. And so I'm really passionate about talking about that process so that people in particular women can understand that that is a critical part of the process. That the first time you fail isn't a sign that you're on the wrong path. It's actually the opposite. It usually shows you that you're getting closer. Um, and so I'm really, really passionate about that. And um, in terms of how gender played a role in my journey, um, I can definitely look back at, I, I do believe that when I was raising capital, which was in 2010, it was, it was difficult. I mean, there was totally an old boys club of going out late at night with these VCs that controlled the market. Um, that's opening up quite a lot. And, and you know, the work Judy and others are doing to, to bring venture to women, bat, women um, entrepreneurs is amazing. Um, and then the other thing was just selling in enterprise sales. And I was selling B2B and I was often selling to decision makers that were men and that you know, you're again, it was the late night, come meet me for dinner at 9pm. Um, if you want to make a sale, and you know, you have to have sales, otherwise your startup dies, that's your that's your lifeblood. So definitely ran into all sorts of things. But um, that's my background and uh, happy to continue the discussion today, because there's a lot to unpack here. Definitely. I like what you said, oh, you know, I, I just bought, you know, a SAS, you know, as one does. <laughs> As one does. Judy. No uh, big deal. No big deal. Yeah, you know, whatever. Um, just a hobby. Um, your pathway, uh, Judy, touches on multiple areas. So from engineer to entrepreneur to venture capital. So how did you get from here to there? And did your gender present any obstacles for you? Um, yeah, it's, I, I speak a couple of different languages, as I think I said, from uh, from large businesses, tech, and public policy. So there's been a few parts of my life. I actually went from being an engineer onto a pathway to being a senior executive. And it's as a senior executive and board chair, I then leaped to be an entrepreneur and venture capitalist. So there's been a few steps along along the page. And I think, you know, as an engineer, um, I've been an engineer for 
over 35 years. Um, you know, it was challenging at the start. There wasn't a lot of women in the program. Uh, I found as a professional, it was okay. Like, cause you, 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 you present yourself, you do your homework. Um, you can, you can definitely influence on the basis of the work you've done and your credibility. When it, when one evolved to being a leader, now that's when things got started to get more challenging. And I think the path towards senior leadership, particularly in, in you know, very STEM-related fields and sectors, can be very, very challenging. I really believe in the, the importance of the 30%, um, more than 30%. Because once you get more than 30% of any kind of, of diverse group, you have a voice. And pulling together that collective voice makes all the difference. I, you know, one of the challenges that I think I realized I had through my career is I tend to think a little bit ahead and uh, foresight, cutting edge. Um, that can feel great to me, but I recognize it's a journey towards influencing others. And so finding those like people that are similar to you that you can then influence has been one of the biggest learning that I've had. And I, you know, I've been one of the proud to be one of the co-founders of 51, which is a financial feminist platform and venture fund. Um, um, and our funds and our communities, over 12,000, over 100 investors that are 90% women. And what's been wonderful about it is we're, we have a similarity of perspective, uh, diverse backgrounds, and this desire in creating the future we want to see, investing in the future we want to see, buying products that represent what we value in terms of sustainability and diversity. And so I think my point would be um, it's a journey. Keep iterating, keep learning. It's lifelong learning. And uh, always trust that sense of um, that's inside you in terms of what's most important to you, what's your own sense of purpose, and have that guide you in the steps you take. Lovely. Very well put. Thank you, Judy. So then um, let's go to Kate. So you're with Baskin. And uh, to me, this is the law firm that is most friendly to startups. Um, so share with us your journey and I guess what, maybe what you notice about female founders that you've interacted with. Yeah, for sure. And I like that we have that reputation in market as being the founder friendly law firm. Um, so what's the worst kept secret about me at Faskin is I'm actually not a lawyer. So my career has really been in helping grow and scale companies and then also working a little bit in venture capital. And now I found myself here at the firm working in our emerging tech practice group. So I started my career, um, I'm not gonna say how long ago, let's just say over a decade plus. Um, and I decided to go into FinTech. I think I am proof that you can do something with a degree in literature um, that isn't just more school. And, you know, I, I don't regret any of those years for anything because I learned so much from that. And it's actually really translated into what I do now, just being a good communicator. Um, but I went into fintech. And, you know, when I started my career, I would say it was usually myself and four or five other women at a huge conference like Money 2020 or ITC. And we'd all see each other and be like, oh, hey, you're here. And I think it was Nicole that said, you know, those late night meetings that, you know, you may or may not always have been comfortable with um, the old boys club, especially in fintech and financial services. It's pretty rampant. I would say we've definitely seen a lot of movement. We've definitely seen it changing. Um, I used to work with somebody that referred to themselves as the old male pale and stale, um, which I love because he was like, I know, I'm, I know, I know. <laughs> and we used to make fun of him all the time. And it was a great environment. But 
you know, I think female entrepreneurs, the one thing that really helped me in the early stages of my career is I found a group of women and, you know, call it what you want. I think we called ourselves the shine club. And when someone was feeling down, it was just like lifting each other up and being like, no, you can do this. Walk into that room like a mediocre white man. Um, and, you know, really make sure that you're taking up space and make sure that you're asking for what you want. And I find in my dealings with entrepreneurs, you know, sometimes they'll say, I think this is a dumb question, but can you answer this? And my response is always, there's no such thing as a dumb question. If you don't ask, you don't know. And there's no harm in asking something and, you know, being like, oh, okay, you just legitimately didn't know this. Because as a first time entrepreneur, what you don't know could fill multiple textbooks. And without asking those questions, you may not have an answer. So I'm really lucky that I work at a team that really supports that kind of thought process, always has time for these entrepreneurs, um, and has invested in someone like me that's there really as a resource for them to help them grow and scale. So I think my advice and things that helped me really early were one, find that group of women that's going to help bolster you, that's going to mentor you, that's really going to help guide you down that path. And then don't be afraid to ask the questions. Don't be afraid to question things. Um, the best piece of advice that was given to me and that I always like to share with entrepreneurs that, you know, if you're a woman that's going out and fundraising and you get asked questions such as, oh, are you and your co-founder married? Or when are you expecting to get pregnant? That's probably a check you don't want. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, thanks for your time. I don't think I want to work with you. You, We just don't have the same values. And I think people are quickly realizing that, you know, those ideologies are going away, but they're not entirely gone. So it's, it, we're getting there. I think it's like the one thing I like to say is we're getting there and, you know, working with more like-minded people and we're seeing the change. Yeah. I mean, I definitely see the change too. We're, we're, we're getting there. Um, but you know, and I like dinner just as much as the next person. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think one thing that a lot of, um, men don't think about is that sometimes, um, you have to, you have kids and you have to get home, uh, to cook them dinner, or it's, it's not so easy to just, you know, go for dinner, um, at 6 PM or 9 PM or, or whatever time that it is, even if you wanted to. Um, right. So then Lynn, you have participated in the Tanamanch uh, Young Women's Tech Leadership Program back in March. So what was uh, your motivation for joining? And what was your experience like? Um, and don't be afraid, I won't be offended. <laughs> um, yeah. No, no, uh, no pressure. And what would you say to your, your colleagues or friends to encourage um, more female academics to consider entrepreneurship? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I joined the Tandem Young Women's Tech Leadership Program back in March. And essentially, I decided to join the program because of my enthusiasm for entrepreneurship and just desire to learn and hear directly from people um, that are active in the startup world. And I've previously attended similar workshops and programs programs with the same goal but to me this one really stood out because of the fundamental material that we were taught such um, as how to get through different rounds of funding and just very basic do's and don'ts um, and it was also a very hands-on experience just because we were put through the challenge of scouting for a new technology and building a business case around it um, but I have to say that I think the part that I enjoyed the most was just the brutally honest conversations we had about 
the past and current situation of women founders in the field. Uh, just as an example, how male founders are just so much more likely to get funded by angel investors or VCs than women because of still existing bias biases around the different genders. Um, and then in terms of encouraging female academics to consider entrepreneurship, I have to say that in my day-to-day -day life as a graduate student, I see myself surrounded by so many insanely intelligent, hardworking and socially competent women. And I have a feeling that often there's still some lingering fear that because we are women, uh, entrepreneurship is just not for us and that we're just less likely to succeed. So in my opinion, um, I think it's just so important to put together programs like the Young Women's Tech Leadership Program and to have podcasts like this one. Uh, and I would tell young female academics to not be afraid of being inspired by women that did succeed with building their own business or businesses. I mean, we have many examples on this call. Um, and just to be confident with their abilities and to do what they want instead of doing um, whatever someone else wants them to do. Words of wisdom right there. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. So, um, Lori, you are very passionate about getting more women into STEM fields. Um, share with us your story and why you think of women in tech is so important. Yeah, thank you. And I'll just share the short version of my story and not bore you with the long version. So in, in my um, prior role in innovation and product development at Gartner, um, I interviewed over a thousand C-suite technology leaders um, and very few of them were women. I mean, that's obviously that's obvious, right? We used to joke when we go to these conferences, it was the only place there was no line at the ladies room. <laughs> <laughs> session comes out, thousands of people stream out, you can get right to the stall. Um, you know, and at first I didn't think much of it other than, wow, not a lot of women in technology. But as I started to hear the stories from women um, about their lives, the struggles, the difficulties with being the only one when you walk in a room, the extra burdens that puts on you that um, is, is largely hidden, but is finally being talked about. Um, and doing my own re research, you know, I realized it does matter, like a lot, like life and death a lot. And so I just started down this journey of curiosity and it started to wrap itself into the book that I'm writing. I'd met such incredible women and, you know, um, Lynn, you mentioned this notion of like, don't be intimidated, right? So you can, you can look at some of these women who've done this amazing stuff and you're like, wow, like, how did they get there? They must have graduated from Stanford first in their class. But that wasn't the path for a lot of women. They weren't engineers, or maybe they were, but then they changed their path, or they weren't technologists, they were economics majors, and then they fell into it one way or another. Um, you know, one of the stories in the book, the CIO of NASA, right, coolest job on the planet, if you're in technology. And she talks about, um, just recently, now that she's retired, she's replacing a carpet that she's had in her house since 1997. It's like, I don't know why I just find that just so comforting to understand that the CIO of NASA had carpet that's over 30, you know, 25 years old, right? Um, just gives me some level of comfort. So, you know, we're human beings at the heart of it. So the book kind of gets into that. Um, right now, currently, um, that journey led me to leave Gartner and start focusing on getting more women into in, STEM fields, technology in particular, full time. And I am um, currently chief digital officer for women in tech. So 
a nonprofit organization 100% focused on a global movement, not just getting to parity on boards, which is which we do, and, and that's important, but also understanding that in Zambia, you, women can't go into tech because they're not going to school. They can't go to school because they're spending most of their day gathering water, right? So you got to get wells to some of these um, girls and boys so that they can go to school and sanitation products and then get them computers and access to the internet and things like that. So looking at that in totality. Why does it matter? I mentioned earlier, it can be a matter of life and death, you know, kind of four reasons. And I'll run through them really quick, quickly. Number one, it's cool and exciting to be working in STEM, right? You get to change the world for the better. It's so cool. You know, so that's number one. Two, um, it makes good business sense, right? STEM workers are critical in the world's economy, country competitiveness, and innovation flourishes in diverse economies. This isn't like the old industrial age where you kept everybody siloed and everybody heads down, time and motion studies. It's the opposite. You want people bumping it. Someone mentioned collaboration, right? Extreme collaboration. You got to bump into ideas and different perspectives because that creates new ways of seeing new products, etc. So, you know, awesome, right? And there's lots of studies about that, right? So when you have get to, someone else mentioned, I think it was, um, uh, Judy, 30%, right? Why is that important? Well, when you get to 30%, HBR says you, of, of um, female corporate leaders, you hit a 15% increase in profitability. Again, great business sense, right? According to Forbes, women-led startups generate 35% higher investment return than all male teams, right? And it the, and the goes on and on. And yet there's only two to 5% funding that goes to majority women founders. So there's a big disconnect between reality and, and um, profitability. Uh, the third thing is role models. You gotta see that you have a future, right? Um, it's great to get all these girls into the pipeline and STEM and thank you Tandem for, for do, playing your part in that. But 53% of women who get into STEM leave. That's twice the rate of men. I mean, that's the bad news. The good news is there are women, families and organizations who figure this out. You know, it's not this um, insurmountable thing. There's just best practices and techniques and certainly healthy environments at work, but healthy environments at home are better for both women and men. And um, we often talk about, um, you know, the when you have children and this burden of staying at home and household management, well, men feel that too. If you're a stay at home um, husband, for example, or partner, uh, there's a lot of stigma around that. And we've got to break that for men as well in order for women to, to move forward because it's very hard. It's doable to have two career, two high-powered careers in, in a family situation, but it's hard and you have to be supportive of, of whatever those decisions are. We have to make sure that men have, feel comfortable staying at home as much as women feel comfortable staying at home and or working. And four, most importantly, we need to play leading roles in designing our world. And this gets into that, that bit about life and death. And I'll just give you one example. In a car accident, all other variables being equal, women are 17% more likely to die. One, seven. That's huge. That is a statistically significant number. And we're also 73% more likely to sustain serious injuries. Why? Well, crash test dummies and car safety around those crash test dummies are based on the average male body. 
Um, so, you know, we're not just smaller versions of men, we have different anatomy. And so when you're looking at those safety stats in cars, you've got to understand that those don't represent what happened to women. Wasn't nefarious, nobody planned on killing more women. It's just, we weren't in the room. We weren't there when we were coding. We weren't there when they were designing the product testing. We weren't there when they were designing and making decisions on, you know, how much they're going to fund for crash tests. So we have to be in those rooms. And that's from drug efficacy to bus routes to, you know, which products get funded. We need to be represented. So as you can see, bottom line, I am really passionate about this for a lot of reasons. And as I said, it's a it's a super cool career and can be very personally, highly rewarding, emotionally, spiritually, and yeah, especially financially as well, too. Thank you, Lori. Yeah, it ticks all the boxes and definitely your your passion is um is very inspiring. Um, so Judy and Kate, when we talk about startups, usually fundraising is the is the thing um, that we discuss a lot, like in terms of finance, but there's a lot more to it. Um, so is fundraising as hard as they say it is? And what value is there in um, financial literacy as a, as a founder? Can, can I step back actually to it? I always love turning a challenge into an opportunity. Maybe it's because I'm an engineer, so we're problem solvers. I think <laughs> awesome entrepreneurs like Nicole and others are on this call see opportunity and challenges as well. So actually, if we look at the trends, um, by 2030 in Canada, it's forecast, I'm sure it's similar states, that uh, women will be managing 65% of the wealth. Already, we make 85% of the buying decisions. So let's flip that around and say, actually, we're in the driver's seat. And so if we come from that mindset and say, you know, what, what's a, a system then that, that works for us, um, that 2% of venture capital, as you mentioned, that goes to women founders, I'm actually seeing that, you know, the stats are still there. It's been hard through the pandemic, but that presents an opportunity for us to come around to each other. And that's what the, the 51 that we've co-founded myself and two tech entrepreneurs have done is to see that there's opportunity in that and, and this virtual circular economy that we can create in terms of founders and capital together and as us as consumers to create the kind of world that we want to grow. And so I think when you do that, you know, we, you know, I hope, yes, it's hard. And then I think you've been talking about it, Nicole and others, to put yourself out there to, to, to raise financing. I'm going to say raise financing rather than fundraising, because I think it's, it, it gets to this point around this is about business. Um, and uh, but I think when you create an environment that is actually, hey, we welcome your diversity. We welcome that you're different. We know that you have interesting ideas versus fitting a mold. There's tremendous opportunity. You know, and you know, I, I'm also a fellow at Creative Destruction Lab, and so meet an awful lot of founders. And if, if there's a couple things I would take away to share, as well as my own entrepreneurial journey, is, you know, hustle is, is critical. I think Nicole was getting at that too, right? You gotta keep working at it. And I love the, the phrase, fake it until you make it. Think big, fake it until you make it. Um, and um, I think it's important and, you know, founders rock. Let, let's recognize as well that we can't all be perfect. Um, I've been a senior executive, board director, whatever. Being an entrepreneur and founder is the hardest thing I've ever done. And, and so let's not be overly critical of ourselves and recognize that, that we, we can do this. Like you said earlier, I think, Kate, you know, go in there with confidence. Go in there, inspire, realize that, that you can aspire and you've got experience from lots of different things. Think big. So it's, it's a mindset shift. 
from I don't have enough. Well, oh, gee, I haven't ticked off 100% of the boxes to, you know, those old surveys with HP and whatever, where 60% boxes checked would have a guy say I could do it. Take that 60% mindset. I, I can do this. I got it. Yeah, I would say like, just add on to that. Fake it to your make it is 100% my mantra. <laughs> uh, <laughs> best piece of advice that was given to me by a CEO very early in my career was, 90% of adults have no idea what they're doing. They just look like they do. And I was like, oh. And I never realized how true that was until I got further into my career. And then people were coming to me for advice and saying, I don't understand how to do this. And you know, the one thing I always tell entrepreneurs as well when they walk into a room, if someone asks you a question you don't know the, the answer to or you're pitching and you're not necessarily the CEO or, or the CFO and you don't know this exact stat, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't have that answer right now. Let me go back to my team and I'll email it to you or I'll follow up with something because there's nothing worse than going in, spewing out a bunch of data and then it being wrong because let's be honest, everything comes out in the due diligence process and it will make you look worse down the road if you said something infactual um, and, you know, it comes out and I'm not talking like, oh, it's 50%, but really it's 51. I'm talking about, you know, bigger numbers and bigger kind of mistakes. I think when I look at fundraising for female entrepreneurs, um, we definitely still have a problem. I mean, I think we're seeing great traction with, you know, places like the 51. Um, I know there's female founders. There's a bunch of groups that are kind of helping create the circular economy. I think also... There's a problem on the back end with the VCs themselves and the funders. You know, there's not enough women around the table. There's not enough female angel investors. And that in its essence is a problem to me because naturally you're, you want to invest in what you know. For example, I invest in fintech. I've spent most of my career in fintech. I would be terrified to invest in a health tech company just because what I don't know about it is just way too much. And I don't think I could actually help them because in the reality, your investors, your tool, right? They're going to help guide you. They're going to help, you know, make strategic connections. I could not help that company. So I think we nearly need to educate women just around financial well-being, financial health, mm -hmm. um, making sure that they understand, you know, this is how you invest properly. One of my girlfriends recently told me that her dad taught her brother how to invest but never shared that experience with her and basically said, well, here's the name of our accountant, like off you go. Um, because he didn't think she would be interested. And having that education is so critical for women. And I think it's critical, you know, as a female founder, even just in your daily life, understanding how to do your own personal investing, understanding how to manage savings, because, you know, we are going to control most of the world's wealth very soon. And we're actually primed to see the greatest shift of wealth um, within the next couple of years that I think we've seen since probably the Industrial Revolution, maybe ever. Um, so I think, you know, there's going to be opening more opportunities to get women around the table, to make sure that they're being heard, to make sure that, you know, you're not just a percentage. And I always have a big problem with being like, you know, the diversity percentage or whatever you want to call it. And you, you'll see it around like certain funds will say, oh, we meet with 20% of female entrepreneurs. And it's like, that's cool. That's great. Thank you for pledging that. But how many of those are you investing in? How many of those are you taking to the next step? And I will say, like, I I have a deep respect for a lot of the Canadian VC funds. I think they do do a good job. They do support women entrepreneurs. Uh, my former fund had, you know, a couple of female-led investments. Um, 
So I think we're doing a good job, but just not enough. There's just still not enough. And we keep, like, there's always room for improvement. We're still 50% of the population last time I checked. <laughs> hey, hey, Kate, great points. I just want to build off, off them a bit more if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, education, I think, is, is the foundation often for us ourselves as women to be able to feel that we have the competence. And it's now become an economic imperative, right? That we, that yeah. we have deep experience in finance to, to be able to manage well, the majority of the wealth going forward. Just speaking to those that might be watching from the STEM field, just a couple of really practical points um, in terms of being investable. One of the things that I've seen some guys do, but all too many women do, is they give away too much of their company at the outset. They have a great idea and they get convinced that someone else deserves a big chunk of the equity. Mm-hmm. That almost instantly makes your company not very investable out of the get-go. So equity is gold. Be very, very careful who you give it to, co-founders, whatever. Um, and, and the second thing, too, is I think particularly, you know, coming from a STEM background, and I do as well, you're taught to analyze like crazy. Analyze enough, but, and it's that design process. Get customer input quickly, you know, discovery, whatever. Uh, don't wait too long to test your idea in the marketplace uh, because time matters. The world is moving fast. So just a couple of practical points that I see sometimes of, of, of uh, you know, STEM founders that maybe trip up at early stages. I'd just like to, to um, bring Nicole into this conversation, uh, into this topic, because one thing that I notice um, is that a lot of um, first-time founders, for sure, they don't know, um, you know, what what's equity? What's a preferred share? What's a common share? What What's a term sheet? How do I know if it's a good term sheet? How do I, what is 10 on 30? How do I value my company? Um, so, you know, where, other than just hiring a CFO and like, hoping for the best, um, you know, how can, how can women sort of get ramped up uh, on that type of, without making a massive mistake at first? Yeah, it's a good point because I know when I was starting, I didn't know any of that and I learned it through the process, right? And so I think a lot of people learn that way, but um, I always joke that, you know, the investors get the best entrepreneur, like your second or third time starting a company because (laughs) <laughs> all those really expensive mistakes you made with their money <laughs> afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that this, these dialogues are really important. I've seen a lot of organizations. I've been involved with the Founder Institute for a long time, and they're making a lot of these documents public. They're providing, you know, really good standards. Um, there's so many podcasts out now. So all of this stuff contributes really positively. And then just, just, a lot of people are willing to tell you as well, right? If somebody calls and asks me, I will always tell them that's a shitty term. Oops, sorry. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. That's a crappy term. She definitely don't take that to do. Don't give away your whole company. Um, you know, wait until you can get your valuation up, work on sales, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they, when you meet another entrepreneur, you just go, Oof. Cause you know, you've both been there. You're like, oh yeah, you're in the, you're experiencing the same horror movie that I'm experiencing. So um, there's a real empathy there and you can relate. And even I know with my investors, the ones that I got along with really well were the ones that were entrepreneurs because they had been there. And so it was really about just sharing experience. Um, but I mean, there's, there's just so many learnings that unfortunately a lot of them you learn in market. Um, and it, it, even though it can be painful and 
you make mistakes that way and it can be embarrassing, you know, to Judy's point, if you're not embarrassed of your first version of your product, then waited way too long to ship. And so unfortunately that is the process that you have to go through and, um, it can be, it can be really uncomfortable, but, um, I think the more that we normalize, um, really, we're really scaring Lynn right now. Right. This is whole, <laughs> awful process. I'm learning a lot life. <laughs> Sorry, Lynn. The more that we normalize it, then for me, I love talking to entrepreneurs in the early stages because I'm like, okay, so you've shipped your product. You're so excited. You're embarrassed because you shipped too quick. Um, which is probably about right. But uh, a week later, you notice there's no new customers coming. And then you get this sinking feeling. Okay, that feeling's right. That one's right. Keep pushing. It's, it's, you got to push past that one. And then there's another little up. And so it's about knowing where the dip is and that that's normal. To me, that's really important because so many people give up in the dip. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's going to be lots of them, of course. But uh, the early ones in particular are the scariest. I guess yeah. that it's all the more important to be collaborating um, and talking um, with, mm-hmm. with others so that you can mm-hmm. share information. Um, and just to build yeah, some, upon something that both Nicole and Judy talked about, just, you know, giving away too much of your company. Um, I always tell people, and I, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. You know, if somebody's really pushing and saying, I need 35% or I can't invest, that might not be the right investor for you. Go and find somebody that matches with your ideologies go do your due diligence on these investors and, you know, uncover rocks. Like a good investor should say, I'm a tool for you. Here is a portfolio of people you can call for references. Let's have a couple meetings. Let's work at this kind of like a partnership. Cause that's in reality what it is, especially with early stage investing, you know, you're probably going to, that person's going to sit around your boardroom table or on your cap table for gosh, like 10 years, maybe. Um, you want to make sure you like them. (laughs) And, you know, if somebody's pushing really hard for something or doesn't get your product or, you know, just doesn't really seem willing to help you. And it's just like, well, this is what I take it or leave it. Just leave it. Like you don't need to deal with that. Um, You know, I think just walk away. There's always another check. There's always another way to raise financing. It doesn't have to be through VC. There's great tools out there. Um, Front funder comes to mind always. There's angel groups like there are ways to do it without dealing with some of the bullshit. Are we allowed to swear? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Kate. Yeah. And now, you know, I, I know that some founders, a lot of founders feel like, well, I'm in a like beggars can't be choosers kind of situation, but it is, it's harder to get rid of an investor than it is to get rid of a spouse. So you better think twice about that. Um, yes. (laughs) So, um, women often have to contend also with the two body problem. And for, for those who don't know what that means, it's like, I'm not just myself. I have somebody else to consider, um, unless you're Lori and then you have a six body problem. Um, (laughs) so Lori, why, um, why must women, and you alluded to this earlier, but why women must, consider um, family and these types of decisions differently? And then Lynn, um, you know, is this something that that you are already thinking about and maybe amongst your friends and colleagues, is that a topic that you're even discussing at this point? Yeah, so um, one thing I wanna, I wanna go back to something Kate mentioned about financial well-being because I think it does tie into this as well. Um, I think that's just foundational for women in general, but especially in careers and especially in STEM, it gives you stability, gives you the freedom to be able to walk away from an organization, from a a bad 
family dynamic and it also brings confidence right like i i can i can it's you know i won't say the word but f money right like i can walk right so um it's hard you want to spend you want to you know uh, realize the fruits of your labor, but you you, you got to get that financial well being and stability in place. So um, I love this problem, right? Life gets complicated about 10 years in. I said 53% of women leave, which is twice the rate of men, whether that's children, a spouse or a partner that's taken a job somewhere else, or you get offered an opportunity somewhere in another state, another country. Um, elder care, combination of all of that, right? And it typically tends to be the female partner that steps back or out of the career. And the myth is that it's due to like maternal instincts. And while that may play a part, the reality is it's often about cultural norms for both the women. And I alluded to that, the men as well, there's pressure for them not to leave. You know, what's wrong with you from your pals, from your in-laws, et cetera. But really, it comes down to a financial decision. And we know about the pay gap, but also recently with the McKinsey Lean In study, they talk about the broken rung, right? So that first promotion is critical to get on that career tra trajectory, feel positive about where you're going and your opportunities in front of you. And when your male colleagues, you see them doing this, you know, and, and so it starts to look like this. Um, and then when you're making those decisions about, well, you know, how do we make this work? Who steps back from their career? It becomes an economic decision. And so if the woman is making less money, they're frustrated in their job, they don't see opportunities, they don't see that path forward, because as I mentioned, the role models aren't there, the decision becomes, all right, well, I'll stay home. Um, so in this two-body problem, it's not just about you know maybe relocating and getting jobs in whatever city it's it's really making it work the good news is again you know i've talked to hundreds of women who figured this out um but we won't talk about it because it's taboo it we break into the bedroom essentially and say well how do you have these conversations with potential partners with your existing partner it becomes about um actively supporting each other's careers. It's not just talking and listening, which is the first step, right? Listening and being that sounding board when you're venting, walking you back off the cliff, but really actively taking a role. So for example, say you've got this opportunity, but you've got to move and your spouse is located in one particular city, town, whatever. Are they going to be willing to move with you? or to make a two state or even two country relationship work. And I don't wanna scare people off who are, who are coming in and going, oh my God, this is so doom and gloom. It's not, everything is a challenge and, and, and an opportunity. Um, and so, and it's a short, someone once said, don't make long-term decisions for a short-term situation. You're not always gonna live in two states. You're not always going to have to, you know, if someone's going to get their MBA, right, for example, and 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 take that leap, and you're, you know, you're managing all this craziness in your household for the couple of years that that takes, that's not forever, right? You'll get through it. It's a window passing in time, and you'll make through it. So you got to step back, and you got to look at what you want from a long term, and you have to find a family dynamic that works for you. And if you're not partnered up yet and you're, you know, you're dating someone or you're, you know, you're thinking about that, you can start to see clues. 
if you have to stay late for work, are they supportive or they start, you know, complaining that you're, you don't care about them or whatever, or they like, no, good. I'm glad you stayed late. Right. You see those upfront and the same thing. Are they always putting you second as well? Are they, and are they actively concerned about you taking those opportunities and taking those risks? And you can see that happening when you're dating. And so it's hard to step back and, and look at that. So maybe bring in your, your friends and your family to, to have those kinds of conversations. But that's how you can make the, the two body problem into an opportunity where you're really partnered in your career together for both of you. And then if you're not partnered, um, you can get in it and you should do this anyway, whether you're partnered or not, you gra grab around you an advisory board, a personal advisory board, just like you do for, you know, startups or any company, get a group of people, two, four, six people um, that you go to for particular types of, of topics and you get uh, advice from them on, on uh, career moves or this weird situation with your manager or something. Um, but hang in there. It is so so worth it in the long run. Um, so I don't want to scare anybody off it. There are definitely solutions out there and you can make the two body problem work. Yeah. So based on what Laurie just talked about and these discussions still being a taboo, uh, to be honest, it is not something that I talk a lot with my colleagues or friends, um, even though it should be because it's such a major topic. Um, and I have a feeling that a lot of women who are interested in uh, entrepreneurship are aware of the potential impact that the career choice might have on their future family life. Uh, however, I feel like at the stage that I'm in right now in my life, uh, for many of us, it's still difficult to have this conversation with a partner because for many partners, the traditional family picture of the wife giving birth to children and then being permanently available uh, afterwards to take care of the children exists or is still very much present in the head. Um, and for all the other reasons that Laurie mentioned as well. So yeah, in my opinion, this is just another example of a barrier that we need to talk about more and really involve all parties of a relationship in these discussions. Mm -hmm. I will say on the second date with my partner, I told him I work long, long hours and travel a lot. So if you're not okay with that, there's no point in us having a third date. Um, <laughs> we've been together seven years now. So <laughs> I guess there was a point in having a third date. Um, Get it done early. Get it done early. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Lovely. Okay. So um, let's do a quick round table. Um, I'm going to combine. Um, how about say a, a few things, yeah, maybe one minute or less of what's it going to take to be a successful entrepreneur and any pieces of advice um, that you would give to young women considering a career in tech or entrepreneurship. And let's start with Nicole, just because you're right next to my picture. Okay. Um, what does it take? I think absolutely number, the number one word for me is grit. So this <laughs> concept of I had that written down too. Perfect. <laughs> she called me first, so I took it. <laughs> um, so yeah, grit for sure. But I think it absolutely is worth it. I know, um, I believe Lori and Judy both touched on um, that. It, I really want to dive into the stats more. I, don't, I know we don't have time, but some of these stats that Judy was throwing out around 85% of the purchasing power, but only 2% of um, 
in companies that are deemed investable, so receive venture capital, are, are led by women. And so I, I believe that the decision-making power on the venture side is, is really, really skewed towards men, but also that women are not having the confidence to start. They're typically starting more e-commerce related businesses from the stats that I've seen. Um, and so I, I would encourage women to, if you're not, if you don't have a STEM background to partner up with other individuals in STEM to consider those types of businesses, uh, Tandem's actually a, a great organization that has a lot of deep tech uh, startups that are looking for operational people. And so to make some of those partnerships to consider those industries, because those are really the industries that are able to attract venture capital. It's really important to understand that, that uh, if there's more women in e-commerce, uh, then that's also a reason why those numbers are going to be skewed. Um, but uh, anyways, it's totally worth it. And I think that the more that we can share and, and do conversations like this, then we're only going to help uh, help the case. So, Great. Judy, how about you? Yeah, excellent, excellent points. And I'd say building from that point on grit uh, and also be selfish enough to know what recharges you because it's a tough journey. Um, and make the time for that. And, and I think really caring about the problem you're trying to solve as an entrepreneur to take you through. And I think, Nicole, you put it very well through the, the dips and doodles that, that you have to go through. And then finally, I think um, it's a challenging path. So you have to be comfortable with uncertainty and risk. You know, at the outset, you talked about uh, the comfort with, with failing and learning and dusting off again, the grit piece, very, very critical. So Lynn, I know you haven't yet started your own company yet, but what would you project? Take a, take a stab at it. <laughs> As someone who's working towards it, um, I would say that it takes a lot of personal initiative, um, motivation to work hard and not being afraid of the minor and major challenges along the way. Um, something that has personally helped me so far in my journey is to just get out and network with people in the field and to get a mentor of someone who has made it. Um, and again, also something that has really helped me is that I participated in the Young Women's Tech Leadership Program. Thanks, Lynn, for the plug. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, how about you? Yeah, like definitely agree with all of the points that have been said. I would say, you know, be a little selfish as an entrepreneur. Think of yourself first. Your company is basically, you know, a reflection of who you are and what you're building. And don't be afraid to ask for what you want and what you need to succeed. I also think too, you know, kind of going back to the failure, being an entrepreneur and being a CEO sometimes requires you to have difficult conversations. And I think as women, a lot of people shy away from those difficult conversations and don't enjoy having them. Feedback is good. Feedback is the only way you, you will grow. So I think on one side of it, be okay with receiving negative feedback because it's not an attack on you. They're actually just trying to help you. Um, so, you know, take it for what it is. And if you keep hearing the same thing over and over, be introspective mm -hmm. and say like, okay, I've heard, you know, 20 people have said this to me. How do I change that and go forward? Then on the flip side, don't be afraid to have difficult conversations with your employees, your investors, your co-founders, because what will happen sometimes is something will fester and then it'll get worse and then it will get worse. And, you know, I've, I've watched companies have to exit co-founders because they just hate each other by the end of it and, you know, never want to be in the same room again or... 
Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, they can't fire an, an executive because they're like, well, we don't know how. And it was a friend of somebody's that came into the company. Just have the hard conversation, rip the bandaid off um, and, you know, screw imposter syndrome. <laughs> Love it. Lori? Yeah, I, I'm thinking, um, I don't know what the right term is because you all you got grit and with that gumption and everything. Um, but forget being embarrassed. Right? I think women sometimes, I guess that's kind of part of imposter syndrome is I'll be uncovered and I'll be embarrassed. Right. And we, we equate embarrassment to risk. And if that's the only risk is being embarrassed, you got to throw that out the window and, and um, start, start doing um, things, even in your personal life. I'm sorry. I just had this vision of when <laughs> I have, I have a daughter who is pretty shy. So one day um, they were slept over, they were young and they'd slept over my parents' house and left their underwear there. Or my mother washed it or whatever. So my daughter was saying something and I, <laughs> I made them put the underwear on their head as <laughs> we drove home because I was like, you got like, is that it? You're just going to be embarrassed. That's it. Let me, let me show you, you know, let's be embarrassed now in a safe environment because it doesn't matter. You're not going to die. Nobody's going to, you know, um, you're not going to fail because you're in, embarrassed necessarily. You're going to fail because you were, you're not going to fail because you were embarrassed and you did something. You're going to fail because you didn't do something because of embarrassment. And so I don't know what the right term for that is, um, but I guess it kind of goes with imposter syndrome, but to the point where you don't take that risk because you think you're going to be exposed. Um, so that's where I would think, you know, to focus on and I've seen in my conversations with people and even in my own life is um, you got to kind of put that aside and focus on where you're trying to get to what you want, have those difficult conversations, take those embarrassment risks, because that's the only way you're going to get what you want and, and what you deserve and, and what the world deserves, quite frankly, we need you out there. And you can't you can't let embarrassment hold you back. Wow. If, if I can build on that, Bobby, I've, I've got a card, you know, one of those cards on my desk that motivates you is actually a quote of Eleanor Roosevelt, do one thing every day that scares you. <laughs> and, and then, you know, what I've learned is I tend to really love co-founding things. And I think, um, particularly as women, um, collaboration makes change possible, yeah. you know, versus seemingly impossible if you're striving to do it alone. So I think surround yourself by others that care about what you care about. Um, and before you know it, you'll have made the change that you wanted to make. Great. Yeah, you know, and, and and that collaboration piece, a lot of people won't reach out because they think, oh, I'm, who am I? And I'll, I'll embarrass myself or something. But so many people are, if you come with a, with a um, truthful agenda and you're vulnerable, mm -hmm. so many people are willing to help you, particularly if it's something they care about. Um, you'd be surprised who you can reach out to that will spend an hour with you if, if, if you come with the right um, attitude, I suppose. So an, another thing about, you know, tying that embarrassment and collaboration as well together. And I love that phrase. Do one thing every day that yeah. scares you. <laughs> to your point, the worst thing they can say is no, right? I don't have time. Yeah, or never answer your LinkedIn ping. Yeah, exactly. Or, or whatever. Okay. You literally have nothing to lose. <laughs> no, exactly. You have nothing to lose. They're, they're not going to hunt you down and out you for, for something, right? <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Wonderful. Um, 
thank you everyone so much uh, for participating in the, I mean, we could just go on and on for hours and hours. This is such a great conversation. Um, thank you to our esteemed panel for sharing your insights and knowledge with everyone. And a big thank you to our loyal listeners. Uh, for those of you who have just discovered uh, the launch podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. And we are running another cohort for the Young Women's Tech Leadership Program in August. So if you're interested and would like to learn more, please visit our website at www.tenemlaunch.com under opportunities. And uh, if you have a master's or PhD in a technical discipline and always wanted to create your own startup, then Tenem Launch might be the place for you. If you'd like to learn more, you can get in touch with me by email, bobby.bidochka at tanumlodge.com. And if you didn't catch the spelling of that, I'm on the website. Or you can uh, hit me up on LinkedIn as well. And finally, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So thanks again, everyone, and bye for now. Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun and gained valuable insights. Why don't you subscribe to The Launch Podcast today? You can share the podcast, tell a friend, and follow us on social media. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tandemlaunch.com, and get in touch today.